Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. Uh, on this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Marcin Wodzinski, who is the uh, Professor of Jewish History and Literature at the University of Wrocław, Poland. Hopefully I said his name and the university correct, the name correctly. Um, he has many books. Uh, the books we'll be talking, focusing mainly on today are Hasidism Key Questions from Oxford University Press, his historical atlas of Hasidism, which is terrific, and we'll get a lot into that, from Princeton University Press, and as well as, I believe it's his newest one, which is, uh, he edited and wrote four of the 13 chapters, which is studying Hasidism, sources, methods, perspectives, which is Rutgers University Press. So with that, thank you very much, Professor Wojcinski, for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to start off, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, okay, I'm a white male from Eastern Europe, uh, 54, professor of Jewish history and literature, as you said, at Wrocław University. Wrocław doesn't say much to most of our audience, I'm afraid. Uh, they, would, they would pronounce it Roklo or another dif- different name, but uh, actually the, the town used to be uh, famous for Jewish history as Breslau, uh, as it was German city until 1945 an important seat of Byzantine of the Sudentums, the place where actually Jewish historiography emerged with Heinrich Gretz, with Betmidash uh, Lerabanin, Jewish Theological Seminary of Breslau, an important site for uh, development of Haskalah, Jewish uh, uh, scholarship, and, and also Abraham Geiger and Reform uh, Judaism. The city is Polish from 1945, and the university uh, at, uh, at which I teach has one of uh, three programs of BA and MA in Jewish studies in Poland. Uh, we teach uh, both BA and MA programs, actually having quite, of, quite a number of students. It's around 30 of 50 students that we accept each year for BA program and around five to eight students for MA programs plus PhD students, very extensive program. I believe we are the only university in Europe that we, for major in Jewish studies the, is teaching three Jewish languages, which is Hebrew, Yiddish, and Ladino. Uh, and my and I'm a historian and literary historian, mostly social historian and, and literary historian, doing mostly 19th century East European uh, Jewish history, focusing for many years already on history of Hasidism and also Haskalah. Okay, so like you said, and a lot of pe- people can tell from your publications, you clearly were very into Hasidism. So. What what got you into Hasidus and you know when did you get into Hasidus? I'm from Poland, so I believe there's a response to your question, right? Uh, no, but seriously, when 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 I started, I didn't want to be a Jewish historian. I wanted to do something sexy. So I actually I chose as my as my major field of interest esoteric literatures. But my mentor was much wiser than I was at the time, so he said, okay, with esoteric literatures, so called, start with Hebrew. So when w- once I learned Hebrew, he sent me to Jewish cemeteries in Poland to do some documentation of tombstones. And there I, I found those interesting, intriguing structures. Oralim, the graves of Tzadikim, uh, which there were kvitlech and people pilgrimaging, and I knew nothing about it. And it, it runs my interest, obviously. There is something in the middle of Poland that I have no clue about, all my life I spent there without uh, any recognition of importance of this. Something that was obviously important for many people to come and to, to witness. I'm speaking about 1980s, right? So actually there was no literature in Poland at that time to refer to, to learn more. So instead of 
reading about Hasidism, which was impossible in Poland, I started researching it because that was the only way to get into. So going into archives, going into tombstones, uh, reading Hebrew inscriptions and finding out who are those people. So that was my entrance into the topic. But later on, obviously, with a much more an exposure to the topic and it, 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 its more international significance, I realized that Hasidism is unique in many ways. It's unique for Polish history. It is the biggest religious movement, the most important religious phenomenon to emerge in Polish lands ever. And I don't mean only Jewish religious movement, I mean of any religions. You don't have anything that would be comparable for Christianity, or either Catholic or Orthodox Christianity or Protestant Christianity that would be comparable to importance of Hasidism that would be a originating in Poland. And also um, importance of Hasidism for informing the way of understanding Judaism worldwide is another phenomenon. And also if you look on Hasidism and uh, you understand uniqueness of the phenomenon that is maybe one of two or three such phenomena in the world that managed to combine opposites, uh, actually unbridgeable opposites of having elitist and mystical movement at the same time. We have Sufism and Hasidism in history only that managed to do it successfully, possibly. So if you think of, of all of those phenomena, that's obviously all we should study Hasidism, shouldn't we? Yeah, I, I definitely hear that. And it's it's definitely something. I mean, I have many Hasidic friends. It's still, it's still go, like you said, it's still going till this day um, in America from Poland. So I think something we should probably start with, and I think I think I think mainly your book Studying Hasidism is the one that I mentioned, talks about uh this focus on this is, is your sources that you use. Obviously, we have many Svarim and, and Vashas and other things written by 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 Hasidic figures and Rebbes and other things, but, but what are the sources that that you worked with as well as you, uh, unique being Polish, I assume you speak, you, you do speak and read Polish. So there are Polish sources, perhaps archival sources, you know, what do you work with? Which sources did you work with? Actually, this is one of the key points of my, of, of my intended revaluation of the history of Hasidism is to think about how sources inform our way of understanding what, of what we research. And uh, if you look on traditional corpus of literary, of, of historical studies of Hasidism, it is mostly based on either drasho or either homiletical theological literature or Hasidic stories. And this famous controversy between Scholem and Buber, what is the more important, right? But this kind of essentialist approach. If you, if you assume that one type of source is the most important, it puts priority into what Hasidism really is, which aspect of Hasidic life is more important and why. And if, we, if you choose, for example, theological writings, it is obviously prioritizing intellectual aspect of Hasidism, which is maybe may very nice for literary studies or maybe for intellectual history of Hasidism, but it is very wrong to assume that Hasidism is mostly ideas. Anybody being Hasidic today would reject this idea wholeheartedly. If we think about any of, of religious experiences, we obviously know that intellectual aspect is only one and not the most important. Yet, when we think about historical phenomena, we have a tendency of looking in kind of black and white, prioritizing categories saying the idea or such and such ideas are Hasidism. Okay, but I'm trying to say that 
It's not only ideas, but behaviors, social relations, and all those aspects that make everyday religion, that make vernacular aspect of every religion. Hasidism included that we need to understand in order to understand Hasidism properly. So for this, we cannot prioritize sources at all. We need to look into all spectrum of those. So the book Studying Hasidism is actually 13 chapters on 13 types of sources, starting with homilies. And let me go into the table of content. Then we have halaha, we have Hasidic stories, we have misnagdic writings, we have maskidic writings, but we have also ego documents, memoirs, Hasidic and non-Hasidic memoirs. We have also folk narratives, archival materials, press, iconography, music, material culture, and finally, finally big data. So mass sources, we can also learn a lot about Hasidism if we go into big data, if we go into digital humanities and those sources that can be amassed into quantitative information in Hasidism. Uh, when I started going into Hasidism, it was mostly archival materials, but archival materials is also kind of misleading term because it suggests a kind of state, state run look, kind of outside look on Hasidism. But state archives contain, contain all sorts of materials, including those written by Hasidim, by one Hasidic group against another Hasidic group, informing against each other, or internal documents that were at some point either confiscated by the government or just sent to the government in support of entirely different matter. So if you go into archive, you have all variety of types of sources. And obviously the dominant type is official documentation produced either by or for state authorities. And uh, that's my, my, uh, my second book on Hasidism actually, which is Haskalan Hasidism, which is starting from archival materials to look into many of the stories that many historians thought that we know about. But if you go into the same stories of the, of the government investigation, but not through hagiographical Hasidic literature, but you go into the same stories with state materials, you get an entirely different picture. Were you the first one to go into to such sources? I mean, who who because who was the first really to start using all these different sources? Well, all those different sources, I cannot claim to use all those different sources. What I'm trying to say is that we can broaden the sources, and I'm unable to use all of them. I have no yeshiva background, so reading. Theological writings for me is very difficult and I do it in, in a very limited way. I use different, different types of sources more extensively. As for archives, for example, the archives were used actually for the study of Hasidism from the very beginning of historiography of Hasidism. Simon Dubnov, the kind of fa founding father for historiography of Hasidism was using archival sources already. Then we had Raphael Mahler who was writing his most important book in the 1960s was also using those materials. So in this sense, I'm not saying this is something new. What I'm trying to do in a new way is to say we need to look into all of those kind of sources and we cannot prioritize them by saying internal Jewish sources are reliable and external non-Jewish sources are not because no source is reliable. All sources are useful if you know how to read them. I think that's a terrific quote. And I think there's another source we should mention also, one that I think you're, uh, you, use, uh, you do use, is uh, telephone books. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about the telephone books. Okay, that's, uh, that's about the Atlas. Uh, 
one of the of the problems. Let 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 me step back first of all. Uh, another guiding principle for me is to look back on the kind of cognitive stereotypes on things that all we think we know, but we don't know where we know it from, or things that we know it's impossible to know, but we never challenge those questions. One of such questions is the number of Hasidim, how many they were, or how many they are. And surprisingly enough, we have a lot of estimations, but we have no, until the Atlas, we had no systematic research into the total number of Hasidim worldwide, because sociologists were giving a lot of good reasons why it is impossible to count them. Well enough. But then, is it really impossible? Or is it impossible with the sources they approach it with? Like uh, the most typical sources would be uh, the census polls or the school attendance or political voting, right? And some, some of the of excellent scholars like Joshua Comenes was trying to combine those two. So he could get kind of reliable sources for segments of say, American Jewish population, but not worldwide, no response to this. And then my very simple intuition was, why not to use Hasidic telephone directories? Every Hasidic group, oh, actually not, every big and mid-size and some of the small Hasidic groups publish their telephone directories. And those telephone directories, they function as kind of membership lists for many reasons. And they are, with exception of one, they are very reliable. On the one hand, it's very important for everybody from the community to be in the book, because as I say, this is kind of membership list. If you are not in, you might be suspicious in some situations, right? If you move from place to place, they don't find you in the book. It's not so It's not so obvious that, that you are really such a film as you pretend to be. Uh, on the other hand, there were cases at which we know some groups were trying to inflate the number of their group by putting people from outside of those things. But this always meets with opposition from people from outside. They don't allow it because there's obvious competition for groups not to allow others to prey on other groups' membership to present as larger. Because being large it has obvious, obvious um, uh, advantages for Hasidic groups. Uh, imagine a candidate for mayor of New York going to the Satna Rebbe. Obviously, the Satna Rebbe can get more from him than, say, Skvir uh, Rebbe, because Satna Rebbe has 26,000 households to offer as a block of voters, right? In opposition to Skvir Rebbe, who has, what, uh, 5,000 only. Um, and most of them outside of, of, of New York. Um, so that's, that's how it functions. What is beauty of the telephone books is that you have every family, or actually almost every family, recorded with a zip code, with a place where they live, and the and belonging to individual Hasidic group. So it's not only that you get the demographic and geography of Hasidism in general, but you also get very clear picture of their belonging, internal Hasidic belonging to different groups. So if you if you if if you have an idea for telemarketing in Hasidic world, come to me, I have all those books and I can offer it to you. But Speaking seriously, obviously it was not very easy to get those books because people had to trust me. I will not use it for telemarketing, right? I will use I will use it only for the for for, for the way that is academic, that it's fully anonymized, and on and on. But for some good reasons, uh, it, it turned out that uh, I've got forty four of such books, which is not even majority of all the books because today we have more than 
hundred groups, hundred tzaddikim active today. So each of the tzaddik is a group around him. But obviously, I have all the big, mid-size, and some of the small groups. For for the smallest one, for those that have I don't know one or two millionim of followers, there is no point to publish telephone book because they have everybody in their uh, telephone directory, right? In in in, in the phone. Uh, but for all the biggest groups, there are such books. I managed to put all of those information and it created the list of 130,000 Hasidic households worldwide today, which allows me to say in a kind of authoritative way, we have between 700 and 750,000 Hasidim worldwide today. It is the data from three years ago, so maybe a bit more today than it was then. And I can say which, which groups are biggest, which are mid-sized, and which groups are small, and how are they distributed between, say, New York or neighborhoods in New York and different places, upstate New York, other places in North America, Israel, European. What are the biggest concentrations of Hasidim? And much of this information might be not so surprising if I tell you that 90% of Hasidim live in either Israel or uh, United States. Well, you, you, you have this information intuitively if you know anything about Hasidic world, but try to guess what is the country worldwide with the biggest percentage of Hasidim among Jewish population in those countries. And it's not so obvious anymore, I would say. It's Belgium. Well, when you hear this information, you know why. Because, because you know, this is the small Jewish community of Belgium with a large Hasidic enclave in Antwerp. And it's a yes, yes, of of course, but first you need to get data, then to understand why it's so obvious. So that's the outcome of, of, of this. And this produced all the chapter in my uh, atlas that has the only available today demography of, and geography of contemporary Hasidism. And it shows how a type of source, kind of thinking out of the box, what can be a source for history of Hasidism, what it produces for understanding Hasidism, not only about geography and demography, but it can go it can go much farther. For example, if you go into details about which groups have um, representation in places with smaller than ten Hasidic households of the locality, then you immediately see connection between the level of stringency of the group and the tendency of living in big metropolis in opposition to small places. The biggest the, the, the groups with biggest stringencies will never allow their families to stay in places with one or two or three Hasidic families only because, again, obvious reasons, because it's very difficult to sustain Hasidic way of life if you don't have the community. While for some others, for example, if, if you see you have no Satman Hasidim living in the occupied territories in Israel, then immediately you understand why. But then you can compare it between groups and you understand something about their ideology only. So not only about the settlement pattern or uh, or demographies. Fascinating. You know, once, once you said percentages, I was going to guess Belgium because percentages, right? It's a giveaway. It's not United States and it's not, or it's Israel, it's not Israel. So uh, I thought, I, I have friends from Belgium, so I know this must be better. But, yeah, but, also, but also for United States and for Israel, it's very interesting to realize that the percentage of Hasidim among the Jewish communities in those two places is roughly speaking 5%. In other words, 5% of American Jews are Hasidim. Around 5% of Israeli Jews are Hasidim too. And now, 
if you go into the street of, I don't know, Tel Aviv, and you hear that Hasidim are such a pest, that, you, that they are flooding the country or stealing it from us, Hilonim, right? Then you immediately understand that this language of religious war is taken from 19th century controversies between Haskell and Hasidism, and they don't refer to contemporary demographical expression of what is in the world. Right, right. That's that, 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 that's definitely. I wonder if there's, I don't know if you have this, any such number of percentage of Hasidim amongst religious Jews, though, let's say in the United States. I wonder. Oh, that would yeah. be it is also, this is actually available because for, for who is religious and who is not, you can get on kind of census polls. So this would be possible to, to extrapolate this number. I didn't go into this, but I'm sure it is available. Actually, it's much easier to get after you got the number of Hasidim. Okay, so we, we went a little bit off track. We're going to go because we got to the Atlas, and that's that part of the Atlas that's still applicable today. We'll, get, we'll, we'll talk much more about the Atlas, but I want to come back. I mean, really, we're still talking about sources here. Um, about the sources, so it's not only you, like you said, but now there's this emphasis, or at least you're emphasizing using different variety of sources to put them all together. So what kind of a picture is painted for you or in your book or other scholars doing this? That How is it different than somebody just using the classical sources, so to speak, is going to view Hasidim and now using all these sources, what kind of a picture comes out? Well, first, first of all, I believe what I'm trying to say is to define Hasidism. And this is the first question. If you go into traditional approach into, into studying Hasidism, you have obviously definition of Hasidism, which is essentialist, which is focusing on certain ideas. I don't know, I don't know, it might be Avodave Gashmiyot, it might be Vekas, it might be several other of, of so-called key concepts of Hasidism. It is obviously the concept of Tzadik, and I'm not, and I'm not denying importance of those concepts, but I'm trying to understand what would it mean for say an average 19th century Frumid in Eastern Europe to say about somebody else, he is a Hosid. Would he mean that he believes in Dveikas and Avodave Gashmiut, or what, what, what would he mean? Possibly not. Possibly it wouldn't be Dvekut. Possibly it would be about social interactions. It would be about a form of prayer. It would be about behavioral aspect of Hasidism. If we go into those other sources, we are able to question the very definition of Hasidism. We are able to question the definition of women and Hasidism also. We are able to understand how differently you can construct those definitions. And first of all, if we speak about Hasidism, you might understand how the concept of Hasidism as a sect emerges. This is something I, I, I was speaking about it already. But let me return to this point. It is important to me. In every historical writing, actually in every scholarship, we are all too often guided by cognitive stereotypes, by things that we believe that we know. And we never question those issues, like a concept of Hasidism as a sect. And this is strongly embedded in the language of talking about Hasidism. Even if we don't call Hasidism a sect, it is very often that when we speak about Hasidism, we Im imagine certain sectarian characteristics. We assume it's secretive, it is hostile to the outside world, it is closed, it has very strong flat and very despotic charismatic leadership and all the other issues. Without looking into the community, we assume it is there. Why it is so? Because it's a sect. So this is like the vicious circle of you know, explanation by explanation. And if you, if you say, how do we know it? 
then suddenly you realize that the concept of kat hasidim or kat mit hasidim as it was called. So uh, uh, the sect of Hasidim, or actually sect of um, uh, hypocrites, religious hypocrites, right? Uh, it, it, it's actually emerges in anti-Hasidic language of Misnagdim of the 18th century, and is very soon adopted by Maskidim, and then by Christian debate about Hasidism, which is indebted to Maskidim, obviously, because that Maskidim produced text in non-Jewish languages that were available for the outside world. And this is where, from the Christian debate on, on, on sects and sectarianism, that this concept is, is, is returned back into, into internal Jewish debate. And then there are certain uh, images before our eyes when we look on Hasidism that are preconceived. And I question this. If you go into archival materials, if you go into folk narratives, if you go into memoirs, in, into ego documents, letters, and all the other sources, you immediately realize that the vast majority of Jews in the 19th century did not perceive the world as black and white divided between sect of Hasidim and the others, and the, the, and the social division between Hasidim and the other Hasidic world was not like between sectarians and real Judaism. That actually, that if we look into how Hasidism was defined at that time, the closest uh, social category that could be adopted for description of Hasidism is not a sect, it's confraternity, Hevra. Hasidim perceived themselves as Hevra and they were described as Hevra. And if you think that a Hasidic group is a Hevra, like Hevra Tchilin or Hevra Mishnayot or Hevra Kadisha or any other pious confraternity, then you re immediately realize that social distinctions between the Hasidim and non-Hasidim are not clear-cut and sectarian. And then you immediately realize that the definition of being Hasid is somewhere else than what was assumed before. And then it allows us to redefine relation between women and Hasidism, an important topic for my chapter two in key questions. I don't give response to this question, but I ask questions and I show how it is possible to question what we think we know. And I think with that we should we should perhaps get in a little bit into uh, key questions and mainly there's five like issues that you mentioned at the beginning. I thought were very interesting on, on scholarship. You, you can go more. I'll just mention that you mentioned the issue of elitism, chronological limitations, limitation of source material, which we really kind of covered already, um, mm -hmm. a focus on intellectual history, which you I think mentioned as well, and then essentialism, which kind of you alluded to. So maybe talk a little bit about those and about what the book, what you get into over here in the key questions. Okay, okay, the, happily. First of all, the chronological limitations. Until very recently, 90% of scholarship on Hasidism was covering 10 initial percent of its history. The, the, the 18th century, the emergence of Hasidism, not going beyond actually 1772. So actually not going into Hasidism when it becomes a movement and when it becomes massive phenomenon. We knew how it was emerging, but we didn't know Hasidism in its full blossoming in the 19th century. It is only very recently for last say two decades, starting with David Asaf and his heartbreaking studies. Um, uh, and later on with, with, with uh, Gabi Sagif, with Gelman most recently and others. Um, with new scholarship that looked into the 19th century to see 
uh, through the history of Hasidism, not only its emergence. So there's chronological limitations, but even with those changes, surprisingly enough, when writing by nine authors, we wrote, we wrote together a book which is entitled Hasidism and New History. It's a massive volume of 900 pages. Uh, the, 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 it starts with the name of David uh, Bill, uh, David Asaf, Moshe Rosman, Benny Brown, Sam Heilman, uh, Gadis Sagif, Udiel Benman, and myself. It was also Ada Rapoport Albert who was on the board, but uh, she, she got sick and had to uh, withdraw from the team, and she died uh, half a year ago, unfortunately. Uh, anyway, we started working on, on, on this project, and surprisingly to all of us, we realized we have nothing to say about the late 19th or early 20th century of Hasidism. So close to us, yet we know almost nothing about those periods. We don't know history of interwar Hasidism. We have only few glimpses into what was happening there. And I don't mean about um, um, factual aspects of you know story of this and that Rebbe, but not even a big picture, not even the, the picture of the most general tendencies within Hasidic world of this time. It was surprising. It is changing, fortunately. This book is part of the change, and I believe that my publications are part of this, but it also testifies to how uh, kind of chronological obsessions, uh, this kind of, sorry to say so, naive historical thinking um, uh, detracts historians from, from looking into, into proper historical phenomena. I mean, naive thinking in a sense that Many historians believe that if they understand the origin of the phenomenon, they understand the nature, the essence of the phenomenon. But it's naive. It is not so. We know that historical phenomena are not what they emerged, but what they became in history. And every historian actually accepts this truth. Yet, there's strong tendency to focus on the origins. Another aspect is what may be most important to me is the elitist versus egalitarian aspect of looking on history. Uh, uh, and again, until very recently, and for many historians also today, history of Hasidism is a history of tzaddikim, of Hasidic leaders. And this is in many ways understandable. It is understandable on the ideological plane because tzaddikim are really the focus of the Hasidic religiosity. Every Hasid focuses his religious experience on the tzaddik, on his religious leader, on his court and on. It is also understandable because it is tzaddikim much more than others that inform the Hasidic community. And it's also understandable because the famous people by nature, they leave more sources, so it's easier to study them. And it's also understandable because it's more interesting because very often those are interesting figures. They leave written testimonies, they leave a lot of sources, they live careful life, they are picturesque personalities. So a lot of studies on tzaddikim and on Hasidic uh, elite. But as I was saying before, this is very misleading in my understanding because it presents Hasidism, it presents the history of Catholicism as a history of papacy, say. Do you understand anything about Catholics, Catholics if you into, go into the history of popes? Well, you might understand something, but obviously very little. The same with Hasidism. If you want to understand the history of Hasidic experience, of Hasidic religious life, if you want to understand how Hasidic groups were structured and how they experienced being Hasidic, 
you need to go into rank and file followers and to understand what it was to be Hasid for them and not for the leaders. I think this is a major conceptual change in thinking on Hasidism and I'm trying to do it in, in all of my publications. I'm obviously not alone, but I think it's important um, aspect of, of what I was speaking about those three others, I believe we've already talked, so I, I won't go into, into those. It's about sources. As I was saying, sources are important not only because they bring us more information, but they allow us to see different aspects of the phenomenon. And also other sources, other types of sources allow us to use different methodologies. And this is another aspect of uh, uh, Jewish historiography, Jewish studies that is... Uh, not so strong, namely the use of contemporary methodologies. Uh, with use of new sources, we might use different methodologies to, uh, to develop it also. So that's, so that's my uh, modest contribution to the field, I believe. And that's really, all of that is really covered in the Key Questions book, right? It is, uh, well, the, the Key question is kind of my programmatic book in the sense that it is saying where I see the major limitations of the scholarship so far, and I'm suggesting how it is possible to overcome major conceptual limitations of the scholarship in seven aspects. So defining Hasidism, asking about relation between women and Hasidism, asking about leadership, but I ask about leadership not looked from the position of the leader, what the leaders say about their leadership. I'm asking what Rang and Fai Hasidim expected from the leader, how they constructed the picture of the leader. Uh, and this is based on mass sources, actually, Kvitlech, a very amazing source for writing history of Hasidism. Then I go into demography of Hasidism, asking how many they were. And what it tells us, demography is not only about numbers, demography is about people. It changes if you are in a, num in a group with three other people or 300 other people. It changes entirely social dynamics of where you are, the, 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 the way you experience it. So demography, and then geography, and then economy. And I challenge the most important assumption about Hasidism as the movement of the poor people. Is it true? And how do we know it? And then finally, I ask when Hasidism, the, the golden age of Hasidism ends. There is assumption that it ends um, uh, around the Holocaust as a very clear, turning point in history of uh, European Jewry, obviously, and history of Hasidism too. And I'm not denying the importance of Hasidism, but in, in the concluding chapter of the book, I'm showing that actually what is happening after First World War is very much the end of traditional golden age Hasidism. It is mostly because of mass dislocations, about mass social changes, economical transformations, and political new situation that interwar Hasidism is much closer to contemporary Hasidic forms than to the 19th century. So that's the structure of the book. Okay, so the, the, I will link to uh, to that book uh, and all the, all the other one. That This book right now on Amazon is about $25 paperback. It's about uh, 34 otherwise. I think it's the cheapest one. So, and it's, it's like you said, okay. So now we want to get to one that's very important. I know it's very dear to you. And I, and, and I think 
overall to listeners, not assuming that everybody is listening necessarily, you know, not who, who not knowing or assuming everyone who's listening, but I think to the to the from public, even to Hasidim themselves, the one that may be of most interest and as a, to the to the widest appeal is the historical atlas of Hasidism, which is a coffee table size book and at list price mm-hmm. is like $75, but Princeton Press has sales. I mean, in the summer it was 50 off for $37, which is amazing uh, for such a book. Um, so why don't you just give an overview of what the Atlas is, why did you decide to write it? And obviously we discussed already earlier on about how it relates to the current demographics of Hasidim, but there's a lot more there. So I want yeah. you to talk about it. That's right. the, the, the Atlas is my attempt of at writing a book that will be both uh, academic and available to non-academic readers. In a sense that it is my uh, kind of case study to show how you can research a religious phenomenon, in this case, Hasidism, with contemporary methodologies, sources, the, all the, the diversified sources, with the use of new technologies, so digital humanities, with the use of modern mapping technologies, so-called GIS, Geographical Information Systems, with the use of most advanced methods and technologies, but at the same time to turn it into highly accessible book. The book that, that can tell story of Hasidism and the issues of, of, of that will allow understand Hasidism for specialists and non-academics alike. And this is possible because this is a book of 74 maps, full color maps, big scale, as you say, this, this coffee table book. Uh, most of the maps are two-page books, so they actually are very big size. It's 100 illustrations, many of them are unique, and texts that are explaining phenomena from emergence, development, then courts, then dynasties, then Stibla, which I think the Hasidic prayer size is the most important phenomenon to understand. Then the big change of the First and Second World War, and then re-emergence of Hasidism after Second World War and the Holocaust, and finally Hasidism today with its imagined geographies, how Hasidism imagines itself today with geographical categories, right? So that's the, that's the structure. So you get a story of Hasidism, but you get also a very good exposure of many aspects of Hasidism that are not available outside of the maps because the map is very different than textual script, the, the, the exposition of the phenomenon. That's something that I work very hard with cartographer. Uh, uh, what's so special, so unique about the maps is that you can communicate big message and a lot of information at the same time with single map. That you that, and we put a lot of effort with the, with the cartographer to make actually every map in the atlas uh, uh, read on two understandable on two levels. One is so-called wow effect level. And uh, well, maybe it's not that you say wow at every map that you open, but you have this aspect that you open the map and immediately you know what is the message. You know what's the big phenomenon that is behind this this map that is telling you. Either big dislocation of Tzadikim during the first war uh, time or the big shift in the second 19th, in, in the second half of the 19th century or other of those, I don't know, location of people coming to individual Rebbe and on and on. But then from this wow effect level, you can go much deeper into reading of those maps. And there you have a lot of information about individuals, about individual phenomena, small, small data, 
and small relations between those elements that you can get much, much more into. You can read some of those maps for more than half an hour or something. And you get a lot of information really from one sheet of map. It's also that we put a lot of time into visualizing, like for example, dynasties. If you want to understand what is the spatial development of different dynasties, you go into chapter three and you see how different Hasidic groups had different strategies of conquering territories with their dynastic uh, policies. And in this sense, the Atlas brings uh, a lot of new information on Hasidism for those that know little about it, but it also brings um, kind of methodological innovation for anybody interested in studying history of a religion. Right. So, this, so like you were saying, the intended audience for this is both. I hope, this is, first of all, it is pretty. It's a beautiful book, I must say. Um, you might say that the modesty is not my strongest virtue, but I believe this book is well-conceived, beautifully prepared. Princeton University Press put a lot of effort to make it into a really beautiful book. And it's very, very informative. It's also... It, it's also a pleasure to go through those pages and to see those maps, illustrations, some of the most unique illustrations never seen before. Uh, I, uh, I managed to find, for example, portraits of Tzadikin that were not known to be portraits of Tzadikin. Nobody paid attention to them in, in small, obscure Polish museums. And I found their beautiful portrait of, of Henchina Rebbe, for example, or beautiful graphic illustration of the Radoshitze Rebbe with eyeglasses and the portrait of Wilner Gaon behind his head. Uh, something kind of unusual. And all of this, you, ha you have all of this in the, in the Atlas. I believe this is the perfect Bar Mitzvah gift. Uh, and, but being serious, this is, a, this is a beautiful book, but it's also a book that uh, I hope with, with, uh, will influence the direction of the development of studies on Hasidism. Okay, and that's and that's uh, it's definitely I agree. I, I have it. It's a very a very beautiful book. It's a lot of lot of information. I don't think we we I made just to make sure we make it also there are like, I guess you consider them a map, but they're like numbered tables, like with numbers of certain Hasidim in certain places. Right? I don't know if you reference those also. There's lists of numbers as well. Excuse me. Uh, so I will I'll link to the uh, to the atlas in the end, and people can definitely order it and check it out. Um, I mean, there's obviously so much more. We, we barely uh, touched the tip of the iceberg with, with Hasidus and maybe for another time, another uh, episode of the podcast. But uh, for now, um, I was, you know, thinking to ask you people, I'm sure would be listeners, I'm sure would be curious, uh, suggested reading that you might uh, have for a beginner starting out in something in Hasidus or where to get started in the historical aspect or someone that knows already some so books that you may have found interesting, whether that's your own books or others. Uh, for beginners, uh, actually, I believe Atlas is a very good start for beginners. As, as I was explaining, the Atlas gives information about this phenomenon for people who have, who have very little information, but leads them very deeply uh, uh, into understanding of the phenomenon, even if it is not um, giving a very detailed narrative story. If you want to go into narrative history of Hasidism, if you want to, to have much more stories and information, textual, then 900 pages of Hasidism and New History is an essential reading. It's too big to go overnight. Uh, so it is more the book that to read chapters than to go cover to cover maybe. 
in one day you will not do it. But if you want to learn about aspects of this, it's a this is essential reference point, I would say. Uh, it is kind of a sad story, but majority of, of reviewers, I mean, press reviewers of Hasidism New History, they did not read all the book. And that's why I'm saying uh, they, they were they, the majority of, of reviewers reviewed the introduction and two closing chapters. Uh, it's, it's just embarrassing. It's just embarrassing. Um, well, on the other hand, there are several of the reviewers that really read to the book, and that's why they are, they are so much better than others, I should say, to be fair to those who did. But um, so those are good books for the beginners, I would say, a kind of introduction. And if you want to see what is the state of research today, you might start with the bibliographical, say, at the end of the book, of the 900 pages book, has this in a new history, which is, is a good introduction to see individual topics. I would say that maybe three most important books of the last years to, to get into history of Hasidism would be Hasidic Studies by Adana Popot Albert, which is a perfect blend of gender studies and Hasidic studies, which presents a so insightful aspect of relation between gender studies and, and Hasidic studies. There is a book by uh, Gadi Sagif, uh, which, is, uh, which hasn't been published in English yet. It's available in Hebrew only. It's called Hashashere, the dynasty. And this is exemplary study of Chernobyl dynasty of the Tversky family, which is amazing book that um, in a unique way manages to merge intellectual and social history of Hasidism into one complete story, a major, major uh, uh, intellectual achievement, I would say. And last but not least, it is Uriel Gelman book on Polish Hasidism, um, also in Hebrew, also uh, very important for looking into kind of counter histories and looking into construction of mythologies of the legends about Polish Hasidism early 19th century, uh, another important uh, contribution to the field. And what's the name of that book? Um, I would say Lublin on um, Marshal I will read it in a moment. Lublin. Also in Hebrew only. Also in Hebrew, uh, 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 but I expect both of those books to be in English translation. Uh, Hasidism is a topic that is very extensively covered. There's a lot of literature. So uh, if you go into, into other aspects, into intellectual history, you have yet more. If you go into individual dynasties, you have a lot of stories. Uh, there is a very interesting uh, and very recent study of uh, history of um, Karim Stolin dynasty written by Benjamin Brown, which you, you might know. There is a very good book by Sam Heilman on the controversies in contemporary dynastic succession into uh, Hasidic um, uh, dynasties today, and on and on. A lot of research, but if you ask me about recommendation, I would start with those. Okay, and we have all your book, your books that we reference, and then there's more of yours as well. People can just I recommend my books too. Right, and people just go into Amazon and search your name or, or other, other various presses. Um, so I think the last thing, uh, just to finish up over here, is uh, what, what books are you working on currently? Uh, I have the three major projects at the same time. One is about Hasidism, which is uh, a study that I do together with uh, two other uh, scholars from Israel. 
uh, which is about dynastic strategies of Hasidic leadership. And this is a book that is using tools of digital humanities. We are, we are trying to reconstruct the social network of marrying children within Hasidic leadership and to see what are differing strategies. Some of the initial outcomes are fascinating to see not only the level, but also the patterns of endogamic marriages within different dynasties. Why certain dynasties have as much as 30% of endogamic marriages in comparison to others that have none or very little of. And also, and also other aspects of this. There is a second project which is entitled To Enlightenments, Poles, Jews, and Their Roads to Modernity. And this is essentially nothing in common with Hasidism. This is intellectual and social history of Polish and Jewish Enlightenment, a comparative study of how Polish Haskalah and Polish Enlightenment look at each other and how they understood or misunderstand each other. Uh, and the third project is a big project of documenting Jewish cemeteries in Poland that actually I started with documenting cemeteries 30 years ago and when I was beginning my academic career, I started with, with Hebrew epigraphy as my PhD dissertation. And now I'm getting back to this. This is a major issue that, uh, that all we face. This is millions of Jewish tombstones in Eastern Europe that we know they exist and we have no clue what to do about them. We have nobody knows how to preserve them and it's impossible to preserve all of them as they are because nobody can finance such a major enterprise and we don't know how to document them, which should be preserved and what we can do about it. And uh, I'm trying to build a new technology that is using 3D scanning and, uh, 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 and uh, uh, scanning surfaces together with, uh, with uh, 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 epigraphical documentation to document all of those tombstones and uh, uh, all the Jewish cemeteries in Poland. Several million of Matsevot. Wow, fascinating. Is that a book or that's just a different project? No, no, it's a project that we are only at the very initial stage of building a team and applying for funds. We are, if we succeed, this will be the project for the next 25 years or something. We are only now applying for a pilot project to do five cemeteries to test the method that we, that we are trying to develop with people from technical university about surface scanning, uh, which is a very, very complex, technologically complex uh, procedure. Okay, sounds fascinating. So uh, again, thank you very much. Hasidism, uh, obviously, but equally important. This is the heritage preservation. Absolutely, very, very important project. So thank you very much, uh, Professor Wojcicki, for joining me. I appreciate it. And thank you for your patience for my projects. Thank you. Thanks a lot.